Hello, my friends. My name is Chris Kay, and I'm the host of Burner Phone Podcast, an educational series about the world of crime from the people that lived it. In this episode, I'll be talking to... My name's Seth Barate, and I'm a former U.S. Marshals Top 15 fugitive and LSD kingpin. Hey, man, what's happening? How are you? Doing good. I'm going to Jamaica next week, so I'm just chilling. Oh, nice, man. What are you doing down there? Just going down for a week, like vacation. You know, um, me and my wife never really went on a uh, a honeymoon, you know, because we got married in prison. So last time I was out in like, D.C., we were talking about it. My parents got us like an uh, all-inclusive, you know, down at one of the resorts for a week. So that was pretty cool. That sounds like fun, man. I've never been there. Yeah, we'll go check. Yeah, I never have either, so I'm gonna go check it out. Yeah, man. Thanks for um, thanks for finally finding the time, man. We've been so busy. Yeah, it's been difficult to coordinate. Yeah, well, shit, it's good. I'm ready. Cool. So, um, so man, where do you? What's your origins, man? Where are you from? I was born and raised in California. I was actually born out in the desert in this town called Lemoore where they actually, uh, they fly like Navy fighters and stuff out there. It's like a training ground. So my dad was in the military, and that's what he used to do in the Navy. He used to fly jets, and I was actually born on the uh, naval base out there in Lemoore. And then my dad being in the Navy, we kind of bounced around East Coast, West Coast. We even lived, I lived overseas twice. I lived in Germany, and I lived in England, you know, all when my dad was in the military. And we came back and we finally settled in, in Northern Virginia when I was about 16 years old and I uh, finished high school there. Okay. And um, are they still together, your parents? Oh, yeah, yeah. My parents are still together. They live in Richmond, Virginia now. And uh, I've seen them. I've seen them a couple of times. You know, I try to get out there, you know, two, three, four times a year to see them. Yeah, that's good. So growing up, man, what what was life like for you? Well, I, I, mean, I guess I guess you were bouncing around a lot, but what were you what were you into growing up as a child? I would say almost I was a you know like a quintessential all American boy. You know, I, I used to go to church with my parents. I used to play sports. You know, I used to get good grades. I was a real high academic achiever. But um, you know, just from moving around, you know, I could never get some roots in. So, you know, I guess I, I always felt like I was missing something. I was always searching for something. And then, you know, when I got older into my teenagers, like around 13, you know, and I started doing drugs and, and smoking marijuana and doing hallucinogens for the first time, you know, I kind of felt like that was, you know, what I was missing growing up. I don't know if it provided me, you know, a sense of security or just, you know, made me feel who, more comfortable with who I was at that time. But, you know, that's kind of how, you know, things uh, transpired. Mm-hmm. What was the uh, what was the first time you ever introduced any sort of narcotic? Oh, I smoked weed for the first time between seventh and eighth grade. You know, I remember going into seventh grade. You know, because I, I used to wrestle, I used to uh, play basketball, soccer. You know, I was real athletic, and I used to hang out with all the other uh, jock dudes. And it was actually this one Japanese American dude named Steve. You know, he, he was pushing me and a couple other friends. He was like, come on, man, let's get stoned, let's get stoned, let's try this. And we went and we got some tie stick from this uh, black guy with jerry curls, you know, that lived down the street from us. And we bought a little uh, 
tie stick and we kind of rolled that up and all of us smoked it. And it's really funny because the dude, Steve, who kind of initiated it all, he kept, you know, on the straight and narrow playing sports and getting good grades and stuff like that. And me and one of the other guys, you know, we kind of, you know, veered the other direction and started getting into drugs, you know, and more into music and bands and skateboarding and more like that scene. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, it's so funny, man. I've, I've seen Thai stick, but I haven't seen it around in a long time. Describe what that, what that like, cause it's kind of unique. I mean, it, it, it's a tie stick. It just looks like a. It looks like a little stick, really. Maybe yeah. it could be anywhere from like five to ten inches. Maybe about a dime, you know, to a nickel width in, in diameter. And um, you know, you you don't obviously you don't buy the whole stick because the whole stick, you know, it, it probably costs a lot. But they would just, you know, we watch him. He'd have a whole tie stick, and he just like, you know, cut some off some of the buds and give it to yeah, you. Yeah, I've seen it. It's kind of like getting. it's kind of wrapped up with like some sort of string. Yeah. It's uh yeah, it's unique. Um I guess that that was during the late eighties, right? Yeah, no, that was shit, that was like eighty three. Oh shit. Eighty three probably. 80s. Gotcha. Yeah, early eighties. Yeah, that's when all all that all the weed in California in the early eighties, it was like tie stick and it was all a lot coming from Hawaii. Because back then the homegrown wasn't that good. So, you know, if you got some homegrown back then, it was some garbage basically. You know, the good weed was coming. Yeah, like California used to get a lot of stuff from Mexico, too, called Acapulco Gold. We got the tie stick, and we got a lot of bud from uh, Hawaii. Yeah, the Maui Wowie. The Maui Wowie, yeah. <laughs> I, think the, uh, I think the homegrown really took off in the early 90s with the hydro, the hydroponics. Yeah, I would say the late 80s, too. You know, when I, when I started getting stuff in the late 80s, and I, I was going down to, like, Kentucky you know, in North Tennessee and even upstate New York. And a lot of those guys were coming up with some really, really good strains, you know, that they, they had like some sativa can indica that might have been like 15, 16 generation, you know, mixes. And they were coming up some with some really, really nice weed, man. You know, a lot of it might have been like B, B-plus quality, but a lot of it, man, you might see like some good A quality sometimes. This was like the late 80s. But I can see what you're saying, like 90s are probably – I mean, I was in by the 90s, but – I'm sure it took even another jump. Then. So, yeah, yeah. So, how did you first get involved with selling dope? Well, I would say, you know, I started using drugs and getting into that whole world around 13, and you know, I was kind of experimenting, hanging out, you know, partying, doing different things. And it wasn't really until I was about 16 that I would consider that I actually started dealing. But really, the whole time, what I was doing. You know, because I was using, so usually, you know, I, I knew people, I knew older people, I knew people where to get it, so everybody would, like, give me the money, and I would go get it. And then, you know, after steadily doing that for a while, you know, I eventually, you know, figured out, hey, you know, I, I can get, you know, my stuff for free, and everybody else pays for it. And then, you know, I just kind of went off that, and, you know, then once you start bringing, you know, these people money, and then they start fronting me, like, twice, three times, four times as much, so... It just real, really escalated real quickly, you know, because, like, when I was 16, I was selling, like, quarters and ounces, and then, like, three years later, I mean, if you couldn't even buy, like, you know, 10 pounds, I, I wouldn't even talk to you. I wouldn't even try to talk to you. That was, like, you know, the lowest, you know, I went in, like, you know, from three years, that's how much I progressed, but, you know, it was basically something that, uh, I want to say something that I meant to do or even wanted to do, but, you know, I was already in that world, and then, 
you know, I was really money, money motivated. And when I found out the money you could make, and I even joke to people to this day, I'm like, man, really being a drug dealer, that's like one of the best jobs, the best lifestyles, at least how I was doing it, if you're dealing with some kind of weight and stuff. Not to say that I would do it again, you know, because I already paid the price and I'm not trying to, you know, lose any more of my life to prison. But uh, I tell people that's all the time. I'm trying to do in entertainment enough stuff so I can uh, live like a drug dealer again. Yeah. Do you remember how much you were selling a pound for back then? Depends on the weed, but anywhere. Like, I was getting Mexican brick stuff for, like, four or 500. I was probably selling it for, you know, 14 to 1600. And then I was getting the uh, Kentucky bud or the, the kind bud that I would get. I might pay anywhere from 1800 a pound up to, like, three grand a pound. But, you know, depending on the quality, some of that stuff you could sell for, like, $100 a quarter. That's what I used to do. I used to take the brick pot to all my dudes that were taking, like, whatever, 10, 25, 30 pounds off me. I would take them the brick commercial pot, you know, and they'd be like, okay, here's what you can sell. And I'd be like, you know, right here, here's what I'm smoking if you want to smoke. So if you buy some quarters or something, you know, that's how I always did it. Because even the good weed, you couldn't get it in uh, big enough quantities, you know, maybe like 5, 10 pounds at a time or something, if that. How did you How did you first meet your ma- your first major plug? Well, actually, I was like 16, no, I was like 15, 16, and um, the guys I was getting it from, they were a couple of years older than me, you know, and these were kind of guys, like, you know, when I was like 14, 15, I, you know, I really, like 15, 16, when I first got to Virginia, I looked at these dudes, they were almost like my heroes, you know, because they were like deadhead type of dudes, outlaw dudes, didn't work jobs, just sold drugs and stuff like that. But it, it, it came to a point where these, these same guys, they started getting on heroin really bad, and uh, I kept seeing, you know, like the Mexican dude that used to, you know, drop the pot off, and, and he saw eventually, he saw that I was bringing all the money, so one time he just kind of pulled me to the side, you know, and just kind of cut them out, and then actually, after all that happened, these dudes were actually started selling for me, you know, so it was just like, I, I would say luck and circumstance, and, and this guy, you know, their plug thought that I was a uh, bringing in all the money, so he just kind of came right to me so we could do direct business. Yeah, yeah, he cut the middleman out. Was uh, back then the people you were dealing with, were they um, were they gang-affiliated at all or were they independent-type guys? No, I would say, I mean, I was in the suburban drug world, man, like colleges, like, you know, deadheads and stuff. So, I mean, it was a really different type of world. I mean, you don't have, like, these gangs and criminal organizations you know, you, you, I would say the deadheads were kind of loosely organized because they used to follow the dead. You could always find them and stuff like that. But, you know, and I heard things like they had Rainbow Family and different stuff like this, but it was never like any organized crime or organized gang or even, even me. I was just like a freelance drug dealer. It was like have drugs, will travel. You know, I used to hit about 15 different colleges in five states on the East Coast, you know, and I would just go, you know, sometimes I would go. Dudes might have money for me. A lot of times, though, I was just front stuff out. And, you know, I, I'd come back around. I had a little circuit I did, you know, all, all through those states there, you know, like, like Virginia, Kentucky, West Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Maryland, you know, and I, I had different dudes at different colleges. So I never – that's what I tell people all the time. I tell people, I say, I don't consider myself a criminal. Even though I did 21 years in jail, I never considered myself a criminal because I felt – you know, I, I wasn't really breaking the law. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I, I, I wasn't carrying guns and stuff like that. I was more like an outlaw because to me, an outlaw is a person 
that's going to break a law that they don't believe in. So really, I felt, you know, and as time has come to show, you know, marijuana is legal now. So I believe I was working in the right direction, even what I was doing. You know, even as a misguided youth, maybe I could try something different or whatever, but I kind of almost feel justified in my actions and everything I did now. Yeah, I can completely understand that. Um, what what quality or special trait do you think allowed you to become a kingpin at that level? What like what was different? What, what do you see different in you compared to others? Well, first off, I want to I want to address the kingpin because I'm always labeled kingpin. I even got a kingpin charge, and you know I kind of say it like uh, you know, wink, wink. You know, I'll say, like, I'm LSD Kingpin, wink, wink. But, I mean, really, I was a little small-time drug dealer, man. I was at my, my height. I was maybe making twenty, thirty thousand 30000 a month. You know, I, I was maybe getting, you know, up to 500 pounds of weed at a time, you know, and maybe 100,000 hits acid at a time. So it's not like I was this huge, big drug dealer. But I think what allowed me to be successful or even thrive in what I did, I'm just – I'm an outgoing person. I'm a, I'm a trustworthy person. For whatever reason, people usually like me and people usually want to do business with me. So, you know, it's just got to be how I carry myself. You know, I believe how I was raised. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm polite. I'm considerate. You know, I'm respectful. And I'm the type of person I can play my position. When it comes time to play my position, you know, I'm there. I don't have to be the boss or the head guy or this or every time. You know, it's, I always feel whoever is best suited for a task that's the person that should do it. Yeah. yeah. You seem like a people person, man. Most definitely. During that time when you were selling dope on that level, what was the lifestyle you were living? I always tell people, you know, um, I was living like a rock star, basically. You know, at least how I would live if I was a rock star. Because, I mean, that that's like the first thing. Like, like when you're young, you know, you think you want to be a rock star. Maybe you want to be a fighter pilot. Or maybe you want to be all these type of different things, but then you fall into this lifestyle, you know, being a drug dealer, where you almost are like a rock star, you know, because everywhere you go, people want to see you. You always got money. You always got drugs. You're always like the life of the party. So, I mean, I I, I would do that, and I, I would stick to that. And, I mean, I was just going around basically to colleges. You know, I had different apartments or different rooms that I rented at all these different universities. You know, I might have different girls at the different universities. You know, I definitely got different dudes selling stuff for me. And I just come through and it was like a, a really, it was like a, like a party on wheels. You know, I would just drive through, pick up money, drop stuff off. I mean, really thinking, though, I mean, thinking back now, I, I was extremely reckless, you know, like the way I was doing it because I would have drugs, acid, money in the car, all types of stuff. I mean, luckily, I never carried guns or anything like that. I never felt I needed that. but. uh you know, I, I was pretty reckless and, and bold and brash, but, you know, I got away with what I did for, you know, a little while until the feds uh, slammed me in the head for 25 years. Yeah, man, I'll, I'll get to that. Where where was the LSD coming from back then? Do you, do you do you remember the source? Do you remember where it was coming from? I mean, it was who, all coming out of San Francisco. It? it was all okay. coming out of San Francisco and Berkeley. I mean, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was only a couple of big tennis, so. You know, I'm sure it was one of them. You know, when the um, did you before the feds closed in on you? Uh, did you have any close calls? No, not really, not at all, man. 
I mean, yeah. I got pulled over. I got pulled over for like I could have got drunk driving a couple times, you know, but the cops would always let me go. But you know, other than that, you know, thinking, I mean, I was really, I mean, thinking back, I was, I was really uh, extremely naive. But at the same time, I was pretty brash and reckless. And, you know, considering all that, my naivety and, and my brashness and my recklessness, I was really extremely lucky. You know what I'm saying? Because, I mean, you get involved in these type of businesses, I mean, anything can happen, especially, you know, when I'm, when I'm sometimes I might have 50, 60, 70, 80, you know, even 100-something grand on me, you know, transporting or moving or doing. And, uh, you know, I, I just always... You know, thank God that I must have like a, a you know, like a, a angel looking over, a guardian angel looking over me yeah. or something the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, that is definitely on the level of get you killed for nothing money. When the feds closed in on you, how did it all go down, man? How how were you were you were you ratted out by an informant? Were you set up? What happened? Well, I was set up in a sting on a state case. And actually, the Sting was a guy that I did business with, like, when I first started out, and then I kind of separated myself from him. And uh, it's really kind of fucked up because he was trying to set up another dude. I mean, I don't think he was necessarily trying to set me up, but when the dude had the problem, he called me, you know, because he was scared and he didn't know how to deal with it. So we actually got set up in the Sting. But even though no drugs or money changed hands, because it was actually a failed Sting, because I, I didn't take any money from any dude, and I didn't bring the any drugs. You know, so there was no exchange. But then what they did, that was a state case. We still got arrested anyhow. And then they pushed it federal. You know, and then it was like that time period, you know, I was just kind of waiting because I could tell, like, with certain dudes, you know, but they were giving them information and, and different stuff like that because they were actively building the case, you know, seeing who was going to cooperate, seeing who was not going to cooperate. And just being in that environment as a kid, and you can kind of tell because it's like one day someone's your friend, and then the next, you know, they won't talk to you anymore because they kind of got lawyered up, you know, and they're, and they're going to talk to the prosecution to, you know, which I, I, I don't begrudge them because a lot of the kids were just partying or whatever, and then the feds come in threatening them to life, you know, they're going to tell them, you know, basically whatever they want. When they got you like that, were you did you meet them in person? Were they recording you? Was the informant recording you, or was it over the phone? What happened? No, uh, actually, I think, they had like a lot of phone records. They, a lot of the case was a bit. They found like a file folder thing I had, and the file folder thing I had had um. I used to do everything over pay phones, and it might have like you know five numbers: one, two, three, four, five. And they don't have corresponding numbers like at the colleges and stuff like that. So what they did is they made this big thing where they took that file folder, and then they had people that were talking about they were on the line with me. So they had recordings. They just had like the phone records, and they and they can show it all from my book that they seized. And then they had the people talking about what we were talking about, you know? Wow. So, uh, I mean, they, they, they had, you know, it was, I mean, if you think about it, it was really a lot of circumstantial, but, you know, even if I think now, man, if if I can go back and do that whole process over again, you know what I'm saying, I, I, I would go to trial. You learn a lot. I mean, when you're a kid, you know, the attorneys and stuff, man, they scare you into different stuff. You know, and even though I, I, I took off, I was a fugitive, but, you know, I wish when you've been in prison for a long time and you meet people, you really, you know, find out. You know, sometimes you should cop out if you get a real sweetheart deal, but most of the time you should uh, retain all your rights and, and go to trial, you know, because you, you can get a lot, even though you might get more first 
in the end, you can get a lot of get back. Yeah. You know, and you'll end up doing less time. You know, but that's something I learned. You know, I, I didn't know. You know, I trusted. You know, everybody says you're supposed to trust lawyers. But a lot of lawyers, man, it's hard to get a good lawyer, man. They're cutthroat. They're just trying to take your money. And uh, even, you know, like you paid lawyers and public defenders, you know, it's it's, it's hard to get a good lawyer who's actually going to fight, you know, the feds. Because you got to think a lot of these lawyers and judges, they eat dinner together. They go out. They're like friends. You know what I'm saying? So Very true. You know, yeah, so... You know, you just got to think that, so it's hard to find someone that's actually going to fight for you. At what point did you become a federal fugitive? At what point did you go on the run? What what year was this? I went on the run, shit, like right right after, right after you know, I got arrested the first time in July of 91. And then my case went steadily like September, and I took off like October. How did you, you know? prepare? How did you prepare for your life on the run? What did you do? Well, you know, I I had a little money, so money always makes it easier. But um, I take my suicide too, so so I had it in my mind. I was like, you know, that whole thing. Like, if I'm gone for second seven years, I can be declared legally dead, and they won't be looking for me. You know? How did you fake you know, your suicide? What I did is I went to this place called Great Falls. It's a national park, you know, in, in Northern Virginia, right up by D.C. And uh, I I staged a suicide, you know, and I. I put, like, props and, and, like, my stuff, and I made it seem like somebody jumped in the water. And then, uh, you know, the the place there, it's like it's like class, class five rapids and, like, real ragged water. So, you know, only crazy kayakers go there, but a lot of people jump in the water, you know, in this area because you jump in the water, you're going to drown. It's going to be smashed in the rocks. So a lot of people commit suicide. It's known for that. So I kind of staged it there. But then I, I took off, and I found out, like, two weeks later, really, I staged it. I did it on the wrong side of the dam because they have a dam that kind of calms down the waters before all the bridges, you know, that are going into D.C. So they dragged the river for, like, two weeks, and they declared my suicide a hoax because they didn't find a body. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that kind of went uh, – that was, like, my – the whole crux of my plan. And I mean, but, I, you know, granted, I, I was only barely, like, 20 years old. And, uh, you know, hopefully if I did it on the right, if I would have done it on the other side of the dam, you know, then they could have said nothing because they could have flowed out to Atlantic and I could have been declared legally dead, you know, if I never got caught. But how did, you find, out, how did you find out that they knew? Did you did you read it in the paper or did you hear yeah, it? Yeah, I read it, I read it in the paper. I was, I was in Los Angeles and I was going, you know, to get the paper like every couple of days, the Washington Post and the Washington Times to see if they had any articles. So, man, describe how you were feeling on the run. I mean, you must have just been stressed the fuck out. I don't know. You know, at first it's like you're a little paranoid because you think, you know, especially when the federal government comes in and they just, like, dissect your life and investigate you and all that, you just think they're, like, all-powerful. You know, they are all-powerful when people are telling them everything, you know, look for. So then, you know, kind of when I took off, I kind of had to realize that, you know what, I mean, these people aren't, like, all-seeing, all-powerful. You know, they don't have, like, a microphone in my pocket. I don't have a microchip in my body. At least I hope I don't after being in prison 21 years, but who knows. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, so once I got out there, you know, I'm plus I, I was kind of partying a lot. So, you know, maybe any stress or any way I did feel, I, I was really partying a lot, you know, when I was out in L.A. and uh, I was spending money and, you know, really, I, I spent I spent a lot of money in about six months, so I ended up having to go back to Texas and hook it up with my, my Mexican weed connect, 
You know what I'm saying? Because I, I, I used too much money too quick, and I had different ideas, but I, I didn't have any life established. Plus, you know, I, I, I like being a drug dealer. That was what I know. So I went right back to it after, you know, six months on a, a run. Did you have any thoughts about going to Mexico? Well, actually, I wanted to go to Europe, but I had a number in my mind. You know, I was like, I want to make $250,000. I don't know why I had that number. But that was like the number. I'm like, okay, as soon as I make $250,000, I'm going to bounce to Europe. You know, I'm going to buy some property so I can get citizenship, you know, on a fake name, have fake ID, whatever. So, you know, even – but even if I if I could have got, you know, regular identification over there the same way I did over here, you know, that was my plan, but it just never materialized. Did you have a, a girlfriend you were on the run with, or were you staying with anyone? No, I was by myself, man. When I went on the run, I cut off ties with everybody I knew. I didn't have any contact with anybody. You know, I had, I had like, uh, you know, because obviously my parents, I told my parents, you know, that I wasn't committing suicide. I let them know because I wasn't trying to, I had already put them through everything I put them through, so I wasn't put, trying to put them through more. So they knew that I didn't commit suicide. So I, we have like some set up where like every four months, you know, I would I would talk to them on the phone. You know, but other than that, I didn't talk to any friends or girlfriends or co-descendants or people, you know, besides when I, I got back in contact with my uh, Mexican reconnect, I was like the only person. Yeah, you weren't ever worried that your parents might rat you out? Fuck no. My parents, no, not my parents. Dude, my, my, my mom, hey, my mom's like the type of person She'll be like, before she'll give up you you up, she'll tell them, take me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's a good mom. Yeah, right that's there. How my, yeah, that's how my mom is. Yeah. So you were a, you were a fugitive on the on the top fifteen most wanted list from what ninety one to ninety three. Yeah, from ninety one to ninety three, I was a, a top fifteen fugitive on the U.S. Marshals most wanted list. And how did it how did it go downhill from there? How did you get caught? Well, I mean, I, I was really kind of out. You know, I started selling drugs again and getting back in the whole lifestyle. I was running loads of weed from Dallas, Texas, up to St. Louis, and it really selling a lot of stuff at the University of uh, Missouri in Columbia. And I was doing pretty good. I, I wasn't doing stuff like I was doing before, but I, you know, I I get you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds or something. And I wasn't messing with LSD at all. But I, you know, started another little business and, and, and had a little run. And really how uh, I got busted, man, it, it was just me being stupid, sloppy. You know, I was with a guy, and uh, he sold weed for me, and, and he had like a half pound of weed in the car. I didn't, I didn't know because we were like going out to the bar, but it was like something he was supposed to drop off earlier that he didn't drop off, you know, and he had in the car. And we were smoking a joint. And just so happened, we were smoking a joint in the back of this Burger King, and it just so happened uh, this Burger King had got robbed, like, several nights before, so they thought we were, like, casing, you know, the thing. So they called the cops, and they came, and they smelled the weed. And, you know, it was over. Even though I got arrested, as soon as I got there, they let me go after they printed me because, you know, the guy whose car it was, he said he told him it was his, and I didn't know. You know, so they, they weren't going to, like, book me just for smoking a joint, you know. But they matched my prints up. And um, 
at that time, I didn't know I was uh, U.S. Marshals' this top 15 fugitive. So my prints matched up in like three days. You know, they started the investigation around here, and it wasn't like two weeks later. They got me, you know, because I, I had a little network established around here. And, um, you know, the one guy, they, they got locked up with me. You know, as soon as they found out who I was and, and they came back on him after he got – actually, I bailed him out. But uh, he couldn't withstand the pressure, man. So he, he told more dudes about me. You know, he told them about the dudes around here I used to sell to. And they just went around, you know, busting those dudes. And then one of them finally told them where the hotel I was at. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's everything. Like, like, like everything, there's no Sherlock Holmes on the force, you know. They, they get all their information from people. And – uh. Even, you know, you, you can call it snitches, this, whatever you want. But, uh, I mean, basically, I think, you know, people in the criminal world like to say it's snitching or this or that. But you look at the rumor mills and everything, like in our society, people just like to talk, man. So if you're doing business with other people, people are going to talk about it. I don't care if they're criminals, hardcore criminals, or not criminals, you know. They're going to talk about it. They might not testify in court about it, you know what I'm saying. But they're going to talk about it. And when they talk about it, someone who will testify in court is going to hear about it, and, you know, then you're going to have people line it up to testify against you if you're doing that type of stuff. That's a good point, man. That's a very good point. Humans are talkers. They will say anything and everything. Yeah, so that's no what I said. You know, everybody talks about snitching and ratting. I mean, you know, a lot of times I, I used to tell the dudes in a joint, right? Dudes used to tell me, like, I, I would say, okay, you know, they're so against snitching or ratting, but if you see somebody creep up in your man's cell and steal something out of his cell, I go, when your buddy come and ask you, did you see anybody go in my cell? I go, you're going to tell him. You know, so if it's your man, it's not ratting or snitching, but if it's, like, your enemy or whatever, then it's ratting. So, I don't know. You know, people make everything convenient to uh, their cause or whatever they're doing so they can justify this or they can justify that. Not saying that I condone you know, anything either way, but, you know, I can only be who I am. So what was the sentence that you received? How many years? I received um, 304 months. I got 292 for my uh, CCE charge, Continual Criminal Enterprise charge, for organizing a group of five or more people in an ongoing conspiracy. I got eight months for failure to appear, for sentencing, you know, because I took off. And I got uh, um, four more months for fraudulent use ID because, you know, when they caught me, I had a bunch of, I had like 25 different IDs on me. So, uh, and passports. But, you know, back then, they just called it fraudulent use ID. They didn't have all the, uh, you know, ID theft laws and stuff that they do now. It was a lot different world back then. But um, I also got enhanced, too, for obstruction of justice for taking off. So that almost put, like, about from 240 months, which was a CCE charge, a 20-year mandatory minimum, took me from 240 up to 292, which is 52. I got 52 more months, basically, for taking off and a failure to appear for eight months. So I got, like, five years for running. Goddamn. So that translates to how many years? Oh, that's 25 years, four months. 304 months, of which I did, um, you know, about a little over 21 because I went in in October 93, and I got out in January 2015. So describe the feeling of, of landing in federal prison 
you're a white boy from the suburbs, you know, you've had experience in the criminal world, but you're not, you might not be particularly a very violent individual. What was it like being thrust into that environment? Well, for me, it was, it was a lot, it was big culture shock. I mean, you know, I was kind of like a, you know, deadhead college type of drug dealer. You know, really kind of laid back some marijuana and LSD. And, you know, I'm thrust into prison. And I, I ain't never went to the penitentiary, but I started out at a medium high. And it's all like, it's like mafiosos, you know, gang bangers, big drug dealers, like bank robbers, you know, uh, felons in possession of a gun. Just, you know, I'm, I'm thrown in with like all these like criminals. So it was really like sink or swim time, you know, and, I, and I've always been the type of person. I mean, not to say, you know, that I'm smarter than anybody else or, you know, more clever or this or that, but, you know, I can always usually usually fit in. Like I said, it goes from that mentality that I'm going to play my position. You know, and at the same time, though, like my position is like I'm not a crass chess dummy or I'm not somebody that's going to be down here that people are going to be running around and, and telling this or that. You know, so I always kind of fit in. I, I choose my allies wisely because in, in prison, you're judged by your allies. You know, they, they see you, you know, run, running around with gay dudes, you know, or crackheads, and you're going to be considered a gay dude or crackhead even if you're a good dude because you are, you know, you're associated with the company you keep. So, you know, I used to really choose who carefully who I would hang around with. And um, luckily being on the East Coast around all the mafia guys, and since uh, I'm a, I got Italian heritage, you know, so they kind of seized on my last name. They would always kind of talk to me, you know, and then being that I grew up in California too, you know, in these prisons on the East Coast, I had, you know, not a lot of homeboys from California, but, you know, there was always a couple, you know, five to ten Mexican gangbangers, you know, Chicano dudes from California, and uh, these were like my homeboys, and a lot of times those dudes might be like the most fierce dudes on the compound, especially on the East Coast, because the way, you know, the environment they come from and like the California system and how, you know, the gangbanging, you know, with the Mexican mafia and the Serenos and all that, you know, so organized and uh, you know, most of those dudes are real dedicated. So even like five or ten of them, you know, they, they would be running shit on the yard and they were kind of my homeboys. So that's what people kind of saw me, you know. So that, another thing kind of lucky, you know, because who I was, you know, I just got in prison, you know, with this big sentence, but I'm hanging out with these like uh, Cali, Cali dudes that are fucking like real fierce and I'm hanging out with like the mob dudes. So people kind of see me and they're like, you know, who is this dude? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were able to adapt very well. What was the what was like the first time that you remember that you had that somebody tested you and that you had to set it straight, you know, set them straight and maybe fuck them up? What was the what was that first instance that happened in prison? Man, really my first morning I woke up and I went down. You know, in prison, people try you all the time, especially when you're new or you're new in a compound. They haven't heard of you or whatever. But I remember my first day, I, you know, I woke up, got locked in. You know, you know, I'd been in the county jail, but the first night on a prison yard, like in a compound. And I walked downstairs, and I was hungry, you know, because I'd come in on the bus the day before, and they don't really feed you that good. And I was ready to go eat, so I was, like, out right when they cracked the doors. And I was waiting at the, uh, you know, the gate for when they called my unit. and um. I thought, you know, there was, there was this uh, 
big black dude, like gang member or whatever. But I, I saw like a little dude, a little a little black dude come up behind him and like crack him on his head with like a, a lock and a sock. You know what I'm saying? And then the, the big dude, he like busted his head open and his dome was all bleeding. But then he like started chasing that dude like all around the unit. And it was like crazy, you know. And they, eventually like, you know, the cop hit the deuces and all the police came and everything. But uh, I just kind of say like that. I didn't, even though I was hungry, I didn't go back to breakfast. I went back in my cell and I was like, man, fuck this. You know what I'm saying? Not like it was testing me personally, but I was just like, man, this is what I fucking got looking forward to. Let me just go back to sleep for a little bit. Yeah. So that was the first instance of violence you witnessed. But what was the first instance of violence that you were involved in? Like, you know, I, I can't honest to be honest. I can't remember of one isolated thing, but I can say you're always tested, man. It's like a constant check. In there, it's like dudes play chess matches, you know, and they, they like do do one thing, like a chink in your arm, and they keep trying to move forward. So eventually, you know, with a lot of dudes, you know, you got to draw the line, you got to say, and you say, man, you're not coming across here. I mean, if it's a verbal conversation, you know, if it's something that gets physical, you know, what, whatever it goes to, you always have to be ready and you have to be prepared. I could say I got in most of my little scraps. I never got in no serious, like, knife fight or any shit like that. I was always trying to kill shit before it got to that level. But um, I got in a lot of little stuff, you know, like little fisticuff action or whatever, because I played sports. You know, a lot of times out there, you know, playing football or, uh, you know, basketball or stuff like that, I might be one of the only white boys out there. And when I was out there playing soccer, I might be one of the only white boys out there. So, you know, I always had to rip. I was constantly being tried, but it's like once you do see if you're going to stick up for yourself and, and you know that you'll, you'll fight, you know, and, and you're not a wimp or anything like that. And, you know, kind of dudes move on to easier prey. But, you know, it's something that's, that's continually going on, constantly going on. Yeah, that analogy, stuff like that. The, the chess analogy, it, 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 it's spot on, you know, and it's a lot, it seems like it's a lot of mind manipulation too. Yeah. I mean, when I got older, you know, because the longer you're in prison, right, and then, you know, by the time I got in, I'd been like 15, 20 years or whatever, and it's like uh, you got all these dudes with these little itty-bitty sentences, like a couple years or whatever, especially I was in the lows at the end, and, like, they just come up to me, and it's like you have these stripes or something on your arm, you know, because I had that 20 years, and, and it was like I had the stripes, like dudes could just come up, you know, and they wanted to meet me or talk to me, and I could just tell them stuff. And I, I used to do stuff like I was saying, like play chess. Like let's say if I see like a new young kid on the unit, and I can see maybe he he's a shifty dude or not even a shifty dude. He just thinks he runs stuff or whatever. I would I would do stuff. I would tell him in the morning, be like, Yo, hey man, I gotta holler at you later. And I would implant that in their mind, like at eight o'clock, like when they're going to breakfast or something, you know, just something real casual. But they'd be thinking like that all day, and then I would never go to them. And then by night, like they would come find me, and they'd be like, Dude. What do you want to holler at me about? And I would tell him, I'd be like, oh, man, it wasn't nothing. I took care of it. <laughs> you know, but that's just like little mind games. I'm telling you, that's like that type of stuff, you know, because you keep people off balance. You know, so, you know, I would do stuff like that, which I'm sure people did it to me at one time. But, you know, keep dude off balance all day. All he's wondering is, like, what I want to talk to him about. So he's trying to go over everything that he did wrong to see yeah, where can I you, could find fault in something. So can you describe the economics of the dope game? in prison were you involved in that yeah i mean basically you know a lot you know i was in places where stuff was coming in through co's i was in places where stuff was coming in through the visiting room and basically you know it comes in 
you know, the people get it, you know, they might do a send out or whatever, you know, for the, for the big amount that's coming in, or it's not really a big amount, but you know, the larger amount, then they break it down and then they sell it all for stamps, you know, cause stamps count as money in there. So, you know, most of the people buy stamps. Some people might do some send outs and they get their money back. It's really, you know, I think kind of ingenious how they, uh, you know, it's like they turn compound money into street money, you know, through the stamps and doing send outs for like, you know, the gambling, gambling rings and everything like that. Almost everything, all the black market stuff all ties into each other and it all works together, you know, to, to, to benefit the whole illicit enterprise going on as a whole. Yeah. What kind of dog you got? Oh, German Shepherd and an Australian Shepherd. Nice. They're barking. They're UTL students here or something, so they're going crazy. They're going crazy. But yeah, man. So, no, shut up. Yeah, you've become quite the successful writer since you've gotten out of prison. You know, you've written multiple books. And... Go ahead. These motherfuckers, shut up. Let me shut up. Okay. Hey, shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Tell me about the process of, I mean, obviously, with your writing skills, you were training in there for for life on the outside. Talk about how you got into doing something positive with your life while you were in there. I would just say the first nine years, I, I was I was caught up in trying to be, you know, a tough guy, uh, someone who can make stuff happen in prison. You know, I wanted to be known as like a mover and shaker. You know, be it transferring money or, or, or stamps or even getting drugs. You know, that that was kind of my thing. I was trying to kind of make my reputation in the prison, and and I was like really into my reputation. But I came to a point in time when I was about 32, like nine years in, when I was like, you know what? What am I investing all this time and effort into establishing a relation or a reputation in here? I'm not going to be here. I'm not doing a life sentence. Why am I perpetrating all this criminal and and convict? you know, mentality on other people and, you know, living my life like this. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to get my education. You know, I'm going to do something that's going to count in the real world. Because in the real world, I don't care if you're a shot caller or a tough guy in prison, unless you're, like, involved in criminal or gangs or something like that. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'll be honest, you know, I got 25 years my first time. So I was like, you know, I'm not really trying to mess around, you know, with the way the laws are now, even though stuff is opening up. They'll gladly put me back in there for whatever. So, you know, I tried, I was like, man, I need to find a way to make money because I'm the type of dude. I don't like to come work like a nine-to-five or, or, you know, a regular job like that. i got to find something where I can kind of have my same lifestyle where my time is my own. And really the only thing that you could do, you know, to form that type of career was writing. You know, and I had read about – I read books by some other uh, convict writers like George Jackson, who wrote Soledad Brother, and, and Jackson the Abbott, who wrote Inside the Belly of the Beast, and – and they kind of showed me, you know, that you can do this. You can kind of write about your life in here. And if you write it good enough and engaging enough and, and people like it, you can get some recognition from behind the fences and actually have something, you know, to come out to when you are finally released. And that's, you know, the whole kind of thing I put into motion and what I did. Tell me about your writing career. Who, 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 who were you writing for back then? Oh, at first I was writing, like, newsletters. I was writing, like, Sam Graham or, like, November Coalition. Like, different prison newsletters were publishing my stuff. And then eventually I started getting published on uh, Hoopsite, 
Slam magazine. I was doing a lot of prison basketball stuff. I was writing for this other kind of hip-hop magazine out of New York called Elemental. I eventually started writing for Don Deven Says, like the street magazines, and then that led to me writing for Vice, and I, I did that for a while. And it's like everything I would do, you know, just kind of led to the next thing. And once I established, like, my website, The Gorilla Convict, and I, I had my own blog, and I was putting out more material, and I put out my first book, Prison Stories. And it's like every little success kind of built, you you know, built on the previous success and every different connections or exposure would kind of lead to a different avenue or a different idea. And, and still to this day, man, I, I got people, they just hit me up cold. You know, they heard about my story or they read some of my material and they want to do business with me or, or provide me this opportunity for exposure or, or for whatever. So, I've just been uh, lucky enough that the stuff that I I write and I like, because I always tell people all the time, I wrote, like when I wrote, started writing books, I wrote the books that I wanted to read. You know, like like now I put out my first comic book. I, I put together the comic book that I want to read. You know, even like I'm working on documentaries and, and I'm starting to do some film stuff. And for me, I'm real passionate about my art and I do the stuff, you know, that I want to do. And if somebody else likes it, cool. If they don't like it, you know, I mean, obviously, everybody likes to have success, but at the same time, you know, when I do this artistic stuff, you know, I got a unique vision on, on stuff that I like, you know, and, and hopefully, as I keep doing this stuff, more and more people, you know, will enjoy my vision and, and want to share it in the projects that I'm working on. Can you tell me about the first day you finally got out of prison 25 years later? Well, it's actually like 21 years later, but... I can say, you know, they do it in a process, too. So, I mean, I actually left the prison in August 2014, but I had a halfway house, you know, for six months. So when I finally, you know, that was big, getting from going from the prison yard to the halfway house because then you got, like, work release in the community and stuff like that. But to me, you know, the, the next kind of gradual step was when I got off that BOP stuff, you know, and I was just on probation, which was, like, in, uh, you know, January 20. 2015, you know, so that was, like, another big step, but really, to me, the biggest thing was, like, man, when I, I just got off probation this January, you know, I did a year on paper, and I was doing so good, even though I had five years paper, they cut me loose on a year, because they said, you know, we don't need to monitor you, so, you know, I mean, I still got my record and my criminal pass and everything, but I'm I'm pretty much free, I don't have to report to anybody, you know, I got a passport, I can go wherever I want, you know, and, uh, you know, as long as I pay my bills and take care of everything, you know, basically, I'm I'm good, plugged back in the matrix or however you want to call it. But I think the freest last felt was um probably like an anticipation of, of me being released after, uh, off probation after one year. You know, my probation officer told me, you know, go ahead, you can apply for your passport. So I applied for the passport, and I got it. And it was like right around the same time or a little bit before the judge uh, took me off and signed me off and um, – that was, like, a really big feeling, man, you know, just like I, I've come this far, you know, from being, you know, because cause I was on planes every time I went on planes. I mean, I traveled. I was in transit. But every time I went on planes or a bus or whatever when I was in the prison, you know, I was shackled, feet shackled, belly waist chain, you know, handcuffs, handcuffs, you know, to the belly waist chain. And that's how I traveled on planes and everything. And now it's, like, cool. I'm, like, really free. And I'm about to go out of country you know, next week to Jamaica and I'm going to be like on a plane and, you know, it's just, it's a big difference, man. I really feel like I've, I've come a long way 
And, you know, I really appreciate, like, all the little small things. Even me and my wife, we go out for picnics and stuff like that, take our dog for the walk. You know, that's kind of really where I'm at right now, just all those things. You take for granted before you go to prison, but then in prison you're like, man, I can't do none of this stuff, so now I'm back out. So I'd say as a whole, you know, it, it felt really free, but it was, it was like a, a gradual transition, you know, because it's like they only let you free or loose a little bit at a time. You are an amazing example of someone who's who's turned the negative into a positive. I'm sure you're you're going to continue to inspire people. Yeah, I appreciate you talking to me, man. All right. Yeah, so let me know, man, whatever you do or when you put something together so I can check it out. Yeah, most definitely, man. I'll send it to you once it's cut together. Well, I went to the vice office. when I was just in New York. I went to the vice office. Oh, did you? Yeah. What were you doing over there? there. You know, I, I went up for, uh, you know, BET has this new series called Inside the Label, and they did, they're did they doing one of the things on Murder, Inc., so they wanted me to come talk about Supreme, you know, the Murder, Inc. trial and stuff. Mm-hmm. While I was there, I fucking went over to Brooklyn to Williamsburg and I went to the vice office. There was that the first. You know, time met my met my editors. The they took me out for lunch. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, that was pretty cool. They showed me the whole place. That shit was huge. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> when, when I when the first time I went over to the vice office, I was surprised at like the work environment. Like, I, it's it's difficult for me to concentrate. I need like a cubicle wall. You know, everyone's yeah, yeah, kind of like yeah. stacked next to each other. Yeah, it's all open. Yeah, but it works. I was surprised. I was surprised, like, all the food and stuff they have. Like, you wouldn't even have to eat. They have so much junk food and food. You know, yeah. just, like, available for the staff. I was like, damn. They even had, like, a bar. I was like, what the fuck? Right, right. Yeah, when I was out in the, uh, I went out to California working on a Vice documentary uh, last year over the summer. And I was at the Venice office. And it was beautiful, man. They just had, it was the perfect place to be an employee. I mean, yeah, like you said, they had a bar. And just everyone was cool as hell. Yeah. Yeah, all kids, though. All kids. Yeah. Like, my editor, my editors, I went to lunch with, like, one's 28 and one's 24. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so, I, I can't I like, say shit, though. I'll, I'll be cranking shit out with them sometime. You know, sometimes it goes slow, but a lot of times I'll be cranking shit out for them. Yeah, man. I love reading your shit with Vice. Yeah, that's why shit. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to give that up. I'll still try to do stuff so I keep the connections, you know. But, uh, I mean, hopefully, the longer and longer I do this other stuff, like this comic stuff and the little film projects I got working, I can get more to that full time, you know, and not have to, you know, Right, but still, you know, right when it's fucking works to my advantage or my favor or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Well, all right, right man. Up, man. Yeah. Cool, man. Let me know what's I'll, up. And I'll yeah, talk I'll to talk you soon. All right. Later, man. Hey, bro.